Just as tides and temperatures impact the ocean, it's the things we don't see that make the biggest impact on maritime trade compliance. Sea Searcher Advanced Risk and Compliance illuminates risk like a lighthouse in a storm, enabling you to save time and effort completing sanctions compliance checks, investigations, and monitoring vessels for illicit activity. Find out more at lloydslistintelligence.com. The Lloyd's List Shipping Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Lloyd's List podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. Our guest this week is the rather wonderful Johanna Christensen, the new chief executive of the Global Maritime Forum. Our sustainability editor, Anastasios Adamopoulos, caught up with her earlier this week and they chatted about where she sees the international NGO heading, why the global crewing crisis is likely to worsen and how this sector is still doing so little to decarbonise. It's an important conversation to my mind because the GMF and its members represent the coalition of the willing and their actions in so many of the big tectonic shifts that our industry is dealing with right now are ultimately going to test how much agency the industry actually has to deal with these challenges in my view. But before I hand you over to Annas and Johanna, I just wanted to get in a quick plug to all Lloyd's List podcast regulars who didn't make it to our How to Innovate shipping webinar earlier this week. You missed out on the live performance, but fear not. I'm looking out for you, and you will not go without. The on-demand recording is now available for free via lloydslist.com. Just follow the link on the homepage or in the podcast notes, register your details, and follow the link to the recording via the email that will swiftly be deposited in your inbox. It was a good conversation featuring leading industry experts from Lloyd's Register, MSC, Eastern Pacific and Rainmaking, all weighing in on how we can create the conditions required to innovate in shipping, a task I'm sure you'll all agree is much needed right now. So sign up, listen in and please, by all means, let me know your thoughts via Twitter or email richard.mead at informer.com. I nearly always love hearing from listeners, especially the ones who don't agree with me. Plug over, I shall now hand you over to Anastasios and Johanna Christensen, the new Chief Executive of the Global Maritime Forum. Joanna, what are your priorities or goals, perhaps, as the new Chief Executive of the Global Maritime Forum? Do you have a specific strategy or an agenda that you want to to implement? So for us, the Global Maritime Forum's mission is clear. Um, We are focused on shaping the future of global seaborne trade to increase sustainable long-term economic development and human well-being. That's quite a mouthful, but that breaks it down pretty easily for us in many ways. Um, Shipping decarbonization is such a big challenge for the industry, probably the biggest uh, challenge for the industry, and we'll continue to have our full attention um, going ahead. So will the crew change crisis that we may get back to at a later stage in this conversation. Um, We are also very much focused on uh, inclusion and diversity. Uh, It's becoming an increasingly important uh, factor in attracting top talent for which the maritime industry competes with other sectors. So that in and of itself is a a good motivator to tackle that topic. And then we're also seeing that the maritime industry, like many other sectors, is coming under increasing scrutiny from a wide range of stakeholders who are demanding more sustainable and fair practices. So that's something that we're really paying attention to. I mean, there are really good examples of that. that. Uh, most recently at the um, uh, at the G7, uh, governments uh, focused on issues such as corporate taxation and profit shifting. Customers are 
ramping up calls for due diligence through their supply chains on a whole range of different issues. That's both on environmental performance, on resource efficiency, on human rights issues and decent working conditions, et cetera. Investors are, uh, are increasingly looking to make their investments more sustainable. And there's uh, growing public interest in and attention to environmental and social and governance issues. So, so all of those things together, I think that that just kind of those are examples of the growing, growing scrutiny that uh, uh, all industries, including the mar maritime industry, are are seeing and 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 that we need to be looking at. And there's a real risk to inaction. One only needs to look at at what's been happening in the in the energy sector in recent months. I mean, look at the shareholder and legal legal action against some of the en energy majors that you know that that were taken, and that you know that just shows that companies will be held responsible one way or another. And so, we as the Global Maritime Forum will continue to identify area where areas where there's a need to 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 work together across stakeholders and across the sector um, to to tackle some of these systemic issues. And we're just really fortunate that we are seeing a, grow, grow, a growing interest um, to support our mission and to work with us across our initiatives. We're also super fortunate to have a really dedicated and skillful team. So together, we really look forward to further strengthening our efforts across all of these issues. Yeah, you, you mentioned um, a lot of issues there because you do as an organization work on a lot of issues. And I think the GMF obviously has a number of landmark initiatives that it's been behind. Uh, and there are a lot of things that you could point to and say, you know, we've sort of, we, we've made a difference. Uh, we've impacted this field. I do wonder as, as you're taking on this position now and having been involved with GMF from the start, how, how do you judge the work that you've done as a, an organization so far? You know, what are some of the, the things you believe you've achieved, your biggest achievements perhaps, and what, areas, uh, fields, or, or ways of working do you think you need to improve in? I think there's a greater understanding and appreciation of the many challenges and opportunities where the maritime sector needs to work across stakeholders and across the industry to tackle them. I mean, shipping decarbonization is just one example of that, right? It's a systemic challenge. No one company or no one group of companies can decarbonize shipping on its own. And so it's, it requires collaboration from all parts of the maritime system, be that ship owners, cargo interests, infrastructure, energy sector, financial institutions, et cetera, to succeed. And the same is true for the crew change crisis, you know, to how to attract the best talent of the future and many, many other issues. And so this, this notion of breaking down the silos and mobilizing the entire system and connecting it with stakeholders from both across the sector and other industries, governments, international institutions and the like, and working together to tackle the wider system in which the maritime sector operates, I think that's one of the key impacts that we've had. And that's then exemplified in some concrete ways through, through some of the initiatives. I think we also, you know, we've really seen sustainability issues moving up the industry agenda. And that's that clearly comes out in our in our in our annual global maritime issue. Uh, issues monitor, where we su survey decision makers from across the maritime spectrum, and 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 those issues are just moving uh, up the agenda over the past few years. 
another area, as you mentioned yourself, there are some key initiatives that have seen a lot of attention, um, but really what they come down to is the industry becoming more transparent. And the Poseidon principles and the Sea Cargo Charter are really good examples of this. And um, we expect to see more of that in on across other sort of environmental social governance areas as well. And, and this idea that the sector needs to work together within the sector, with outside stakeholders, with regulators to find good solutions to these sort of systemic challenges, I think that's that's really where we see our biggest impact. Just in terms of, of perhaps more on the short term, looking forward, you, you announced that you will be hosting your, um, your conference that was postponed last year due to COVID in London this upcoming October. Why is this such a big deal? Why is it so important that this conference happen? And what should we expect from it? So I think it, it embodies, you know, some of the points that I've raised before. It embodies the sector coming together across silos, across um, um, stakeholders, bringing in outside perspectives, um, such as those of other industries that have gone through similar transitions or challenges as the maritime sector is currently um, experiencing. Um, uh, we've, we've seen that in, in previous as, events as well, where we've been able to bring experts from other industries or from other fields that can really heighten the level of understanding about how one might take tackle a given issue. I think the ability to come together and to work in really concrete ways together on tackling issues and sort of figuring out, you know, how how each each stakeholder, each participant contributes to solving a puzzle together. I think that's that's such that's something that happens so well at that event and and is is sort of the the secret sauce, if you will, of, of our annual summit. And while we were able to do some of that in virtually um, uh, last year. I think we we very very much hope that we can we can come together in person this year. That's certainly the plan. And we of course have to continue to monitor the situation, how you know travel restrictions etc. evolve over the coming months. But it's you know we 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 do anticipate that we'll be able to meet in person. I think perhaps you know we're we're still in the in the middle of the well in some ways the the middle of the pandemic. And there are these perennial problems that the, the, the sector continues to face. I think the most notable one is the crewing crisis, which has emerged from, you know, from the pandemic since last year. I think GMF obviously has been involved in initiatives to, to help resolve the problem. But you, we and I'm sure you still see that it's still quite um, extensive. Uh, there are still seafarers stranded at sea. There are still owners and charters who, you know, are not helping with the resolution of the problem. Obviously, compounded by by the the restrictions imposed by different governments in the world. I mean, how do you, as someone who sort of works with the industry and the different sides of it, how how do you judge the situation at the moment? Can you give us an overview of how, you know, where things stand when it comes to this very important issue and what more you think you you could do um, when it comes to to the crewing crisis? Yeah, um, I mean, I wish I could come with a more positive outlook, but honestly speaking, at the moment, all all indicators are that it you know 
the, the crew change crisis is getting worse, not better. And uh, we have some really concrete examples of that. Um, so uh, back in the winter, and actually as an outcome of our, our virtual high-level meeting in the fall, you know, um, there were uh, a number of our participants then who, who formed a task force and who, who put out a declaration, the Neptune Declaration, that I'm sure you're familiar with as well, and that was signed by more than 800 organizations. And it outlines a number of different actions that need to be taken in order to resolve the crew change crisis. You know, some of them have to do with um, uh, recognizing seafarers as key workers and giving them priority access to vaccines, implementing um, health protocols um, based on, you know, the best practice available, um, better collaborations, especially being between operators and charters to facilitate crew changes. So, so th some of those issues, you know, where that that continues apace. So the task force remi remains in place and continues to work on all of those issues. But I, but then, you know, to better understand what's actually happening, um, and and to, the, you know, there was a there was a, a sort of a distinct sense of we need better we need better data to understand, you know, what's actually happening and to monitor and respond accordingly. And so um, that led the task force to create this um, crew change indicator, which collects information um, from, the, from the 10 largest uh, ship managers um, in particular. And so this aggregated data from, top 10, from these top 10 ship managers shows that the, numbers, uh, the number of seafarers on board vessels beyond the expiry of their contract has continued to rise even in the last month. And that com comes on top of a rise in the previous month. So, uh, you know, the, the, the number of seafarers on board vessels beyond the expiry of their contract has risen actually um, by over 50%, um, relatively speaking. And, and, and that's, that's on top of um, an, an additional significant increase in the number of seafarers that are onboard vessels for over 11 months, um, which is sort of the, the maximum continuous period of a seafarer should serve on board a vessel. And, and I think that's just, that just points to that it's going entirely the wrong direction. It's getting worse, not better. And, and certainly, and especially when you think about that the, the, the data that we're getting is presumably from some of those that are doing the most to actually tackle the challenge and to help facilitate some of the crew changes that are so desperately needed. So I um, I don't I don't know that we have the the philosopher's stone on this, but continuing to work on the areas that were identified early on. So party access to vaccines, uh, really good protocols in place in key hubs, um, better collaboration across the stakeholders that have, you know, that can help uh, make facilitate crew changes and then air connectivity in key maritime hubs, et cetera. Those are some of the areas that, that we that we're, that we continue to work on and members of the crew, uh, the crew change task force continue to work on. Mm, well, the, the picture you're painting certainly isn't very, um, very positive, but I, it's, it's important to, to know what the reality is because I think um, it's one of those issues that as time has gone by, perhaps uh, some eyes have uh, or some attention has moved away from but it's it's certainly important to, to keep to keep it on there because um, as you said the numbers and the the worsening numbers suggest that this is not 
unfortunately, this is not going anywhere anytime soon. Mm. So I, I on, just just as a follow up to that, you know, when there was a lot of scrutiny, obviously, from from outside the maritime sector as well, we saw a lot of mobilization or commitments, you know, from different companies and, and actors to sort of uh, to, to, to help resolve the issue. Are you still seeing that interest, that commitment from individual, let's say, actors that you engage with to try and resolve this? Or has that spirit waned, that intention, that, that attitude, because there appears to not have been much improvement? Yeah, definitely. So one of the things that we've seen is that uh, that there's been a, a really concerted uh, dialogue and effort between uh, ship owners and operators and the charters. So uh, they've come together to develop a set of best practices for charters that that can be applied. And so so really seeing all of those different stakeholders come together and figure out what's the best way to handle this. How can we best um, manage and 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 help facilitate crew changes? I think that's 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 a really promising side of things. Um, I mean, there are some outside factors that are just, you know, that are just really um, that are that are just really hard to overcome. But can we find those pockets where it's really possible to 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 make a change? There are also really good examples of, you know, individual countries uh, moving forward. So and and actually providing access to vaccines for seafarers and the, the US and the UK are good examples of that. Many other countries should follow suit. There's been calls across many European countries and 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 other countries to to provide the same um, as the the same service. So in in due course and in time, we hope that that will result in a in a more in a in a, in a better and easier system where where those crew changes can take place. But the, but there is the, certainly the fact that that the different stakeholders are coming to the table. They're contributing each the area where they can where they can make a, a positive impact. I think that's 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 helpful. But I think there are also things that are that are that are still outside of the control of even most of the stakeholders that are that are that are there, right? So mm. and it's and it's a and it's a highly frustrating process. And I think we've been in enough. I'm sure you have. Uh, we have on our side conversations with with those are you know whether it's a ship owner or a charter or whoever who's responsible for a a vessel where they can't get their crews off the ship and and where they where they keep running aground in 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 a variety of different geographies and and just can't make it happen and it's and it's a highly frustrating process and i think collecting those examples sharing them figuring out how they get overcome etc i think that's that's certainly a, an important part of it as well yeah i think uh, we will certainly you know we'll certainly keep following this and Hopefully, the, the situation is going to turn sooner rather than, than later. Another issue that is certainly at the center of your attention, and uh, you can tell us now if it's uh, if it's going in a better direction, is the question of, of decarbonization. And I think uh, we've just had the environmental meeting of the International Maritime Organization, um, which agreed on a couple short-term measures for shipping, but left quite a few people disappointed with the levels of ambition and, and other elements just about around the, the talks. But maybe the biggest takeaway was that governments have finally agreed to start discussing market-based measures and longer-term measures. And of course, the GMF has been outspoken in favor of the need to accelerate these measures to help with the adoption of, uh, of low-carbon and zero-carbon fuels. So 
I want to ask you at this stage that we're in whether you know you think enough progress is being made for this for the times we're in in terms of both the industry and the regulators and I and I know you know the regulators is a is a more complicated question because we have um, the EU which this week is going to to propose its uh, the, the commission is going to propose its um, its uh, regulations for for shipping emissions and shipping fuel so do you have a sort of assessment of of how well or fast things are going in this field yeah things are just moving way too slowly <laughs> like mm. it's a, it's very it's very hard to put it any other way it's simply going too slowly and it you know on on the back of this past IMO meeting it would have been really nice to be optimistic and say oh this is going in the right direction it is not um and and that's there's just no other way to put it and i think it's really interesting in the context of what's happening outside of the IMO um so countries representing more than two-thirds of global greenhouse gas emissions and more than two-thirds of the world economy have already committed to achieving carbon neutrality by or around mid-century. The same is true for thousands of global companies who've joined the COP26 race to zero, science-based targets, and other equivalent carbon neutrality by mid-century commitments. That level of ambition is simply not reflected in outcomes at the IMO or in the maritime sector more broadly. It just isn't. And I don't know why. It is, it is, it is just baffling that it, you know, that you can have such a broad level of commitment to a clear goal on a global scale and that doesn't get reflected at the IMO. So that's clearly an, an area that we are paying attention to. And our efforts are fully focused on catalyzing action just both from the company side across the maritime value chain and from governments. And, you know, I think on some level, it's fair to say that the private sector is leading the way and taking pretty concrete steps that are certainly parts of the private sector is maybe the way to put it. Parts of the private sector is leading the way and taking con concrete actions to make sort of zero emission vessels a and fuels, you know, the sort of the dominant competitive choice by 2030 but that really needs to be matched by more decisive government action, because without the policy frameworks in place to reach that ambition, it's just simply not going. It, 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 well, I don't want to say it's going to be impossible, but it's certainly going to be very, very difficult and there will be a lot of losers in it. So so from that point of view, in order to make that transition, you know, on the timescales that we're talking about, we need that enabling policy framework. I, I certainly look forward to what's coming out from the EU later this week, um, and hopefully that can that can catalyze um, more concerted action at the IMO as well. One of the the things before the next IMO meeting, which is in the end of November, is um, COP26 early November. Are you are you hopeful that that is also going to be a catalyzer for for change behavior and change willingness in the IMO? Uh, yeah, certainly. I think there's a there's a there's a there's a point of pressure. I mean, shed, you know, there's a you know, um, shipping was excluded from the discussions in Paris, and this is sort of the first big um, follow-up, if you will, the first big status meeting after the the Paris Agreement, and and that's part of its significance. And so, in a sense, there's really an opportunity to shed light on what is and isn't happening at the IMO. And so, from that point of view, it's a it's a it's a really great and 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 
And it's a really great opportunity, frankly, to 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 bring some greater clarity on what's going to be needed and and how that might happen. Um, and also to close the loops on. So it's a, to to sort of give a little bit of to, to figure out what's what's in that discrepancy, if you will. Um, between the, the the sort of the global ambitions, if you will, and and the um, and and the ambition level that's being set at the IMO, and that's both on the short and the long term, right? Because it's both about the sort of the end objective, the 2050 objective, which is which is not set at you know which is not aligned with the Paris Agreement yet, and 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 on the some some of the shorter term actions that will help us reach reach some of those interim goals that we need to achieve in order to achieve the end of, achieve the end objective. So one goal that we've set for the getting to zero coalition is reaching at least 5% zero emission fuels in international shipping um, by 2030 as part of that wider objective of commercially viable zero emission vessels operating along deep sea trade lanes. And, you know, in, you know, that's going to need or require collaboration across both maritime and a sort of ecosystem of companies and governments and you know part of it is around the technologies you know while the technologies to build zero emission vessels and produce zero emission fuels are uh, it certainly exists they need to be further developed and especially tested at scale to ensure that they are safe and reliable and clean etc and you know that's why so much of our work um, both in the getting to zero coalition and within mission innovation is focused on facilitating industrial scale demonstration projects that involve the full value chain you know that's you know we really see those demonstration projects as not only demonstrating that zero emission shipping is viable at scale but it will also help bring down the costs and scale up demand to enable broader deployment of zero emission solutions and um, but but all of this is, you know, all of this will not be enough to close the sort of the price gap uh, between fossil fuels and zero emission fuels. So um, really clear policies are, are really what's needed to make zero emission shipping commercially viable. There's really no other ways around it. And it's and it's it's frustrating, frustrating, especially because you can really see the opportunities that shipping decarbonization creates um, just in terms of new growth and job opportunities. And that's not least in developing and uh, emerging economies um, where 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 you could really see some of those new technologies and the new fuels um, uh, creating a ton of new um, opportunities. I don't know if you saw our uh, recent study that was um, developed by Ricardo and the Environmental Defense Fund that explores South Africa's potential to supply uh, the global shipping industry with zero carbon fuels. You know, there again, I mean, uh, EDF has done similar reports about uh, Chile and Morocco before. Likewise, for, for South Africa, really explores a, a significant potential due to location, resources of renewable energy, economic makeup, et cetera, so that South Africa could produce and export green hydrogen-derived fuels um, in the future and, and really have that be a catalyst for economic development, opening up new export markets, creating jobs, et cetera. So there's a, there's a tremendous opportunity there. And so how do we unlock that opportunity and make sure that that gets recognized in international fora and 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 that that the enabling environment gets and the enabling frameworks get put in place to unlock that potential 
Joanna, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you, Anastasia.